explore some important aspect of the Buddhist practice. Not that I, I pretend to any deep realization and the power of transmission that uh, suddenly uh, one could uh, bring the, the fruits of years of practice by just once being here. But I saw that is, is a topic that is quite interesting and very rich. And I wanted to explore here together as an old student speaking to newer students and also to all students are there many here so that we will be exploring together that, that aspect and Patricia is going to, to assist me in this exploration. So it's not that I have uh, any solution or that I have um, a clue of how we will lead this retreat. Yeah. We're going to, to discover it as we are going to do it. And the, the danger will be to, to fall back too much on all patterns because that's the one we know. So we will try to, to develop this retreat as we go along and, and exploring. But uh, there is certainly interesting exploration to be done uh, in the topic of non-duality. And also I see that uh, non-duality is a term that is quite in, in fashion for some years. And as many words, it can be understood in so many different ways. And sometimes people too easily believe that they all mean the same things. So it is easier not to inquire deeply in the meaning and say they all say the same. Therefore, let's stay in the kind of a... So they say, let, let's stay in a, in a vague understanding and it's sometimes quite comforting to believe that everybody is saying the same. Maybe they are, but at least it needs some exploration, some inquiry to, to understand clearly what it is about. And that's what we're going to, to explore those few days together. My exploration in, in non-duality has been mainly through the Tibetan tradition and a little bit to the Hindu tradition. But I know better the, the Tibetan tradition, so that would be the line. And certainly uh, try to connect with the earlier Buddhist tradition, because I think that's quite important. We, we stay with this ground, which is very strong, actually. Even in experience non-duality, we can find that, so that uh, we don't depend on, on some kind of later development. And this, uh, as I said, this notion of non-duality appeared quite clearly in, uh, in the teaching of the Buddha. It was expressed more clearly later, but not, not as an invention. Suddenly some later teacher discovered or wanted to bring a new vision. But I think mainly as an answer to some difficulties that were in the traditional way of seeing the past. That this traditional way of seeing the past were leading to some kind of uh, contradiction. And then in, in inquiring into those contradictions, trying to, to go beyond those contradictions, then certainly this notion, for the time being, of, of non-duality was uh, seen and experienced as a a way out of those dead ends. And I, I like to 
explore a little bit how the traditional way of seeing the past, in a sense, is bound to lead to a dead end. Now in this uh, retreat we are certainly going to, to explore non-duality and sometimes challenge the, the vision of the earlier tradition to, to clarify the, the, what it means in non-duality, but we will see that in a sense, in the practice, things can, can fit together providing, I think, we have a clear vision of, of what it means. Otherwise, practice can also become, become a dead end. Something is, is striking when we, we travel in India and we see the, the most ancient monument, like in Sanchi, for example. We see that there is, uh, there is no image of the Buddha, no, nowhere represented. And for 500 years after the death of the Buddha, he was never represented. There was only his footprint, or tree, the wheel, and the stupa. And in, in Sanchi, for example, you see the, the description of the life of the Buddha, and he never appeared. There is only some of those symbols showing that um, what we are describing, it is about the Buddha's life. And his awakening, or nirvana, is represented mainly as a stupa. And the stupa is a very interesting building in a sense because it's, a, it's a, like a, a small mountain, very small. Like if you see the shape, let's take a, a half an orange and you know, put on the on the table, and that that the, the main stupa, you know, completely full. It's concrete, and people reaching further, they try to find the door. So how can we get inside? So you go around, you go around, and there is no door, there is no way to get inside. So it's a very strange building, actually, not like a, a synagogue or a church, because you can't go inside, so in a sense completely useless, you know. cannot shelter anyone. Yet it does represent and symbolize the, the awakening of the Buddha. In a quite interesting way, Master Eckhart, the, the Christian mystic, said that if we say of God is a stone, you are closer to the truth than if you say is goodness. We say nobody is going to believe that God is a stone, but people could believe his goodness. So in a sense, in the most extreme statement, nobody will believe them. So in a sense, the, the nirvana is the Buddha is the nirvana is represented as this uh, um, building that is completely useless. If we see the, the way that the, the path is usually considered, I'm going to make it very simple, there's no pretension to see all the complexity of the, of the spiritual path, but we go from, from a consideration of human condition as being completely um, limited condition and developing a spiritual path in order to go beyond that to free oneself from this conditioning situation to a state of freedom. So it is described, let's take a very simple description of that, it is described as a, a quietening down of the mind, for example, we'll take the concentration path first, and quietening the mind, so the mind is quite agitated, running here and there, so we, we tie it to a, a 
an object of concentration or the breathing or the mantra or in a disc or something like that. So by tying the, the mind to a stable object, the mind will become more and more stable till it reaches a, a deep uh, state of stability. And then to, to bring the mind to a more subtle state, the object of uh, concentration will be more and more subtle. So will be infinite space or limitless consciousness, nothingness, then neither consciousness nor non-consciousness, uh, the deepest state of concentration, and then one can go beyond to the unconditioned. On this path, we see that <clears throat> we'll meet many obstacles that one need to get rid of. Uh, of course, distraction, sleepiness, and um, agitation, and desire, and... Uh, Jealousy, all those things have to, to be uh, destroyed in a sense, if we believe it or see that from the unconditioned point of view, not only from concentration. So we have to, to get rid of all of those. And, and finally we, we reach to this nirvana, to this unconditioned state. The nirvana, the unconditioned state, is it, described as uh, unborn, deathless, the unconditioned. But what we observe, or even if we take this simple way of seeing the past, or another way of going through the past and getting rid of all obstacles and, and design, aversion and emotions, what we, we can see from this way of seeing the past, that we, little by little we get closer to, to the aim by getting rid of small things, uh, we can finally reach something that is called the unconditioned, the unborn, the deathless. But there is something quite strange in this vision because it seems that this deathless, unborn, unconditioned has been depending on very much. Actually nothing is depending on so much as this unconditioned that you need to get rid of everything. Get rid of all the mental states and confusion and distraction. And so it is, in a sense, a very, very demanding and conditioned state, very, very much like a conditioned and conditioned state. So there seems to be there some contradiction. If in order to reach this unconditioned freedom, or this condi unconditioned freedom demands the absence of so much, nearly demand the absence of everything. So in a sense, um, we wonder if it is really so rich, a state that is so much demanding, and if it is so free. How can we reach something that is unconditioned by a conditioned past? How can we, through causality, reach something that is beyond causality, that does not depend on causality? So it seems that it doesn't make sense to believe that we'll reach beyond causality through causality. It doesn't make sense if we believe that the unconditioned is the ultimate state of conditionality when we get more and more, more subtle. We go farther and farther in the mm, conditionality that suddenly we reach beyond co 
conditionality or causality doesn't make sense. Uh, it seems there is, there is a disagreement between the past, which is causal, and the fruit, which is beyond causality. And we wonder how is it possible to jump from one to the other, suddenly that there is no causality. And yet, seeing that this unconditioned state is depending so much on the, on the absence of nearly everything. So it seems that if we practice, however intensively, collecting causes, however subtle, there is no way we can reach to any state which is unconditioned. So a practice that will not lead to the unconditioned. Well, then let's not practice, as so many people are doing. It doesn't seem to lead very far either to stay in a state of, of confusion, and running after this and that. So, if we practice the spiritual path very sincerely, in this conditional way, we cannot go beyond conditioning. If we don't practice, we don't go beyond conditioning. Therefore, we are in a dead end. So now, how, how is it possible to consider a spiritual path or is it maybe that the unconditioned is just a dream, just a, a story for children, you know, uh, that many people are kind enough to believe, and therefore they sit down for hours uh, trying to reach there that cannot be reached. Again, I, I took a very simple description of the past. We can make it more and more sophisticated, but it still comes down to how can a causal paths lead to something that is uh, unconditioned. And, and I think that the Rit Master saw that difficulty, that there was something strange in uh, stating this possibility of the, or the existence of unconditioned freedom. and practicing a path which is depending on causality. So we wonder how, how can we get out of this dead end? Or should we go home? Yeah, not yet. What we saw in a sense that we consider the the spiritual path from the conditioned point of view. We, we took for granted that conditionality was the truth. And from that vision, we tried now to imagine or reach something that is beyond conditioning. So in a sense, we, we took for granted that the confusion that we may be in is a true vision of our reality. And what we see, if we take that as a true vision, if it is the truth, if conditionality is really existing, then uncondition unconditionality has no meaning. But if now we were to consider the past from the unconditioned point of view, if it is true there is an unconditioned freedom, 
Now, what about the past, seeing from this vision? What does it mean, then? If there is an unconditioned freedom, so it is not born, it is not depending on, on anything, it's not depending on time, so it cannot be caused. So in this sense, we cannot practice for freedom, but we can only practice freedom, not for. There is no, no notion of building something, creating something, reaching something. Then if we see that from the unconditionality, there is no path leading from here to there, if unconditionality is a truth, if the unconditioned is a truth, then it means that the condition is not a truth. Conditioned world is not a truth. Therefore, the unconditioned, if it means to get rid of the condition, has no meaning. From the unconditioned point of view, if you like, there is no duality between unconditioned and conditioned. Because conditionality has no meaning from this point of view. As it's not born, then it is always already here. As it's not depending on anything, there is nothing that needs to be cultivated. There is nothing that needs to be done. No opposition between the condition and the unconditioned. So from this uh, vision, if you like, the spiritual path is seen very differently. Very differently. Not as a mean to, to eliminate so many things, to, to get rid of so many things. No, nothing needs to be made, because then the unconditioned is already here, is unborn. So in this sense, uh, nothing is an obstacle to the unconditioned. When we say nothing is an obstacle, it means distraction, it means desire, it means aversion, it's all that, that we know we meet in meditation. Nothing is an obstacle to the unconditioned. So it seems to be a very good news. Well, the other side is nothing is a help either. Nothing can help. So in seeing from this angle, the, the practice is a, has a sense of uselessness. Usefulness, again, put it in causality. Uselessness not in the sense of opposed to uh, useful, but it cannot be reduced to causality. So we'll try to explore the practice through this kind of flavor. Now it's not that we convince ourselves, you know, reciting like a mantra, you know, nothing to change, nothing to improve, it's useless and 
again, we are trying to use a tool. We are trying to use this mantra to make it useful so that we uh, stay in the unconditioned. But maybe as we will explore, the tendency we have to see experiences or mental state as obstacles and then to react, to, to give them solidity, to give them reality, that can be questioned in our practice and seen through. Again, not trying to imagine or build up some kind of unconditioned state, but seeing through how, in a sense, our practice always is grounded in the belief that the condition, conditionality is a true reality. Therefore, we need to, to move things around. Seeing in our practice this belief that we are reacting upon it. But how we, we can understand, in a sense, there is no tools that can be brought. One may say that, that seems interesting, that's slightly different from sometimes our use way of practicing. Say, yes, I like to practice like that, so tell me what to do. I like to get a, a toolbox. But there is no toolbox. And that may be what we need to, to accept, that there is no toolbox in this, uh, in this practice, in this inquiry. Nothing that we can hold on to help us. Yet, we can see in the practice, so often we are looking for a toolbox. You know, what, what should I do in this condition? What should I do in this situation? That's fine, just be aware of that. So it does open the, the practice in a very different way. And nothing we need to get rid of, of course, nothing we need to, to accomplish. But we see that this kind of statement is true in any kind of meditation. There is no mindfulness if we want to try to get rid of something or cling to something. But we can see in this context maybe there is a slightly different meaning. But it means also if there is no toolbox, there is not so much need of somebody speaking from here, you know. Because if you can give technique elements, then, then that's easy. You come here, you have the list of the, of the tools that you need to transmit, and then every day you transmit some tools. But uh, there is no tool to transmit, so one may wonder what is the usefulness of people speaking up there, you know. Maybe just to remind us that there is no tools reminding you that there is no tools, reminding us you know, also that there is no tool. And in having no tool, there is a sense of freedom. Again, not as a slogan to convince ourselves, but to explore that. I heard many times a story told by my Tibetan teacher, which I thought very colorful, so I will, I will tell it to you. So it's a, well, I mean, the people that are meeting did not live at the same time, but who cares? So let's, let's imagine that. At this time, in, in India, there was a great uh, Hindu teacher that was uh, um, moving through India and challenging, great um, teacher of the time, challenging them, and they would debate, and who would win, win the debate, so the other had to convert to the vision of the one who win the debate and all his disciples. And it had some important uh, outcome because uh, the king and, and the, 
prince and the rich merchant, of course, would sponsor the, the winner, you know, like the football team, actually, you know. So they would, here they would sponsor the, the winner in a spiritual debate. It was quite important. If you were defeated, then all your disciples, your monastery, will have to convert into the, the vision of the other. So it was an important income. So this Hindu teacher, Ashwagosha, at this time, was moving through through India and challenging all the great master of the time. And as he approached Nalanda, the great uh, Buddhist university, said at one time there were 10,000 monks, so it's kind of a stronghold of the Buddhist tradition. But in the monastery they saw that there was no one able to challenge Ashwagosha. So they were scared that all those 10,000 monks should convert to the Hindu tradition, which is not the best outcome for a Buddhist monastery. So uh, they said that the abbot was uh, worrying and at, at, at night came a, a crow and, and he put a small knot on, on his um, leg and the crow flew to the south of India where Nagarjuna was staying with his disciple Ayadeva and when he read the paper so he immediately wanted to go. But Ayadeva, his disciple, told him, you, you are too old, I will go there. And I, Nagarjuna said, first we have to debate, because we have to see that you are really up to the task. And they debated, and it said that uh, Ayadeva, the disciple, defeated the master of Nagarjuna, so, so he was fit for the, for the challenge. But Nagarjuna told him on the way, but please don't be attached to your eyesight. So Ayadeva said on the way, if you imagine south of India to, to Nalanda, which is near Patna, so it's kind of a long way, and on the way he met an old woman that was blind and asked him for one eye. So Ayadeva immediately took one eye and gave to this old woman. So when he arrived at, at uh, uh, Nalanda, he, he sneaked in the monastery disguised as, as a water carrier, and he saw the Ashvagosha outside in the Hindu tradition, what they were doing, and so he observed them very clearly. So one day he came out of the monastery and went with a, 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 a big bucket of water to water some dead plant. So I had a, his disciple, Ashvagosha, came in and said, Are you silly? You know, how, how do you want to revive those plants that have been dead? You know? He said, Well, you are, you are offering, uh, making offering for your dead ancestors, so why, why can't I water those dead plants? So they were quite upset and they went to Ashwagosha and told him, there is a, a monk there making fun of us. So the next day he went out and, and took a, a beautiful copper pot, but full of uh, filthy things, and he started to, to clean the outside, and as they do with ashes, it can be shining. So again the, the disciple of Ashwagosha came and said, you are silly, you, know, you wash the outside, but how do you want to purify the inside, which is full of filth? So well, you go and bath in the Ganges, hoping to purify your mind. So I'm doing the same. Again, they went to Ashwagosha and complained that somebody was making fun of them. So the, the day of the debate uh, was set, and, and, they, and they met. And the Buddhist teacher, Ayadeva, came, and he brought with him a, a cat, and, and had a lot of incense burned. So when Ashwagosha came, the Hindu teacher, he had actually a parrot on his shoulder that was whispering the answer. That was a, a, a pandit, you know, whispering the answer. So the cat swing the parrot, it's, it's, it's jump on it and, you know, kill the parrot. So Ashwagosha complained, said, well, I thought Buddhist, you were respecting, you know, life. And I had never said, well, I, we do respect life, but I mean, the cat, nature, it jump on the parrot. So the parrot could not help. 
And then he was burning so much incense. Bhavati used to ride the incense in the sky, but there was no way to see them. So now they, they were on the same foot because the Hindu teacher, Ashwagosha, had no more friends to help. So they debate, and uh, Ashwagosha wa was defeated. So he had to stay in the monastery, and he said he, he really was uh, not happy with this situation, was complaining. And at one time, uh, some um, page of paper fell, and then on one was uh, saying that he would be one of the greatest Buddhist teachers. He said that he, he wrote quite a few texts, uh, The Awakening of Faith, which is one of the most well-known Buddhist texts. So here we, we have um, a description of, of um, discussion and uh, you know, debate, and we don't go through the details of the debate. But later on I found a Chinese version of this story, which is quite different. So in the Chinese story, Ashvagosha came to the abode of Nalanda, or Ayadeva, came to the Buddhist teacher and asked him a lot of questions. But the Buddhist teacher did not answer anything. So Ashvagosha went away with all his disciples and said, you are a fool, you even can't speak. So he went away. And as he walked, he walked farther. Suddenly he started to debate and, and, and see the question again. And then he came back and said, actually, you were right, you know. And they convert, he converts through the silence of, of uh, Ayadeva. So we have two visions here. So you see sometimes silence is very, very uh, convincing. You know? But there are many kind of silence. So it's not just because one is silent that uh, there is a deep understanding. So sometimes we have to take one side and sometimes to be uh, more in the, in the silence uh, way. But this is to point out that it's, uh, if we explore non-duality, also it cannot always be done through language, because then we start to, to turn in, in round by concept, trying to hold concept, something that is certainly beyond concept. So we'll explore different ways. Okay, so we'll have a few days and uh, practice, and we'll practice also some uh, element that is supporting that. We'll do meta practice, we'll do other practice, because we need an, an opening in the heart also. There are many elements, there's no tools, but some element that can uh, bring this disposition that we can hear that deeply, and that will work with that. Uh, there's a, a few elements in the practice that we will be able to, to do. And if I see in the Tibetan tradition, they always join the practice, n not just only on the, on the ultimate like that, because one, one can also be frustrated or just lost, but there is some element that may help to get this sensitivity. So we'll be working with that in this, in this retreat.